Last week we saw how hypocrites need the gospel and I trust that we also saw that we are all hypocrites. Not because we're Christians or because we're religious or from any particular uh, culture or, uh, or race or background but because we are human beings who are fallen, sinful, uh, we know what we should do and we don't. And I trust also that we saw that our response to seeing our hypocrisy uh, is not initially to say, well, I'll just try harder to not be a hypocrite because try as hard as we may, uh, we are always slipping into hypocrisy, always slipping into judgmentalism. Uh, our response is to say, well, I'm trapped in this unless someone does something to save me and so we fall on the mercy of God, that, that huge grace of God that says even to the hypocrite, uh, your sin of hypocrisy was borne by me uh, at the cross. We finished our last week's passage with this simple statement in verse 11 of chapter 2. God shows no partiality. The same standard is applied to all, be they Jews or Gentiles, be they those with the law or those without the law. He holds all people to the same standard. And we see this standard to which he holds all people are revealed in the law. So uh, Paul goes on now to, uh, to talk about the role of the law and the fact that the law is unable to justify a person. The law is not simply a set of rules that defines human behaviour. It's both an expression of God's own character and the conditions of the covenant relationship that he had with his people, the people of Israel. It wasn't, obey these laws and then you will be my people, but you are my people. Because you are my people, uh, here is how you should behave, here is how you should obey. It's been said that just as a human being is the living personal image of God, the law is the written preceptual image of God. So it makes sense then that the terms of his covenant with his image bearers is embodied in this law that reveals his own character. But what was the ultimate purpose in giving the law? Now Paul is taking us there and we'll unpack it a bit more next week uh, but we'll look at it briefly in 3 verse 20 he says by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now the Jews of the day, of Paul's day, of Jesus' day like so many people through history and I think so many people today uh, even uh, Christians today think that the law was given as a means by which we may justify ourselves. Either by making up for our wrongdoing 
by doing enough good to tip the scales in the other direction so we have more good works and bad works, or by simply having the law affirm our own sense of self-righteousness. We read what the law says we should do and we say, yeah, I do that, therefore I must be a good person. Rather, the law is that which judges us and shows us up before God. It shows our guilt before God. Israel's history and their their ongoing disobedience to God and his law, which led to judgments after judgments, ultimately showed them showed them up to be just like any other person, just like the Gentiles. And on a number of occasions in the Old Testament prophets, God essentially says to them, I really should just treat you just like the other nations because you're behaving just like the other nations. And if it wasn't for my promises to your father Abraham, I would have every right to say to you, you're not my people. But he made the promise to Abraham. His promise was that through this stubborn, rebellious, sinful, disobedient people, he would bring blessing to every nation. So because God shows no partiality, we're told in verse 12 that all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law, meaning the Jews, will be judged by the law. Why? Because God requires the same fruit from all people. Actions that demonstrate a heart that's turned towards him. Now we have a phrase in English where we say that person is a law unto themselves. And it comes from verse 14 here. By it we mean that person is a loose cannon. They have no regard for the rules. They have no regard for what's right or wrong. They just do whatever they please. They're a, they're a law unto themselves. They, they create their own laws and follow them. But that's actually not what Paul is saying here. In fact, he actually means quite the opposite to that. What he's saying is there are, there are people, he's talking to Jews now, there are people out there who know nothing of the biblical law. They've never read the scriptures. They've never heard of the Ten Commandments. They've never even heard of the God of Israel. But they still do seem to do things that line up with the biblical law. The Old Testament law is by no means the only body of law that condemns murder or that affirms faithfulness and fairness and honesty. We could make many parallels between uh, the law of the Jews and the law of many Gentile nations. Why is this? Well, simply because, as we've already seen, human beings are made in the image of God. We are designed instinctively to live 
in a way that matches a right relationship with him. And no amount of sin or depravity or fallenness has been able to completely erase this instinctive sense of right and wrong, what we call the conscience. Even the ISIS terrorists has within themselves a sense of right and wrong. Now, terribly distorted, because they think what's right is to kill everyone who doesn't follow their line of thinking and to approve of those who do. But it's still this sense of there is such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil, and they have a desire to follow what they believe to be right and true. It's their conscience. But Paul here is talking about those who we might call uh, happy moral pagans, the average Australian who has no regard for God and his law, maybe has never stepped foot in the church, never opened the Bible, uh, all they know about Christianity maybe is what they've seen on The Simpsons, but they don't go out and murder. They believe in honesty, they believe in integrity and we would look at them and say they appear to be a good person. I believe that what Paul is saying here is that while the Jew has the written law, that's the standards for judgment, the Gentile without the written law has their conscience. And this conscience functions in the same way for them as the law does for the Jews. Remember we saw in 1 verse 20 his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. The Gentiles are without excuse. Uh, and here in chapter 2 we see that they demonstrate that they have no excuse by the fact that from time to time more or less their actions will coincide with what God's law says. I think this is what's been portrayed in Jesus' parable that we heard, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Three men, each of them received something from their master. And did you notice that what they received was according to their ability? So none of them could say, he didn't give me enough to work with or he, didn't give, he gave me too much to work with. Now in this parable the master is clearly Jesus because he's telling it in the context of uh, looking for his return as the judge. But what do the talents represent? They can't be, as some suggest, spiritual gifts. Um, as some say, well, unless you use your spiritual gift uh, you won't be fruitful. It's true, but notice how that third servant who didn't have any fruitfulness from his talents was thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus won't send you to hell just because you don't exercise your spiritual gifts. I once was, was shocked to hear at a conference someone use this parable to say, well, 
Jesus is telling people they should be going out and evangelising. They should be using their master's assets well to share the gospel with their friends. He didn't say it, but he was implying if you don't evangelise, you go to hell. He's not saying that. I believe that what these talents in this story represent, and talents is money, is the opportunities that people have to hear and respond to the gospel. And what they do with those opportunities reveal where their heart is in relation to their master. The first two who were commended as good and faithful had a view of their master that was positive. That he was a master who liked to reward his servants. He was a master who invited his servants in to share his joy. That's how they saw him and so it was a natural thing then for them to straight away willingly and joyfully go out and invest his money and bear fruit. But the third servant had a negative view of his master. He saw him as hard and harsh and unjust. And he showed that attitude by what he did with his talent. He buried it in the ground. He ignored it until his master returned, thinking that somehow he'll be able to justify his inaction when his master returned. And that's what he he did. He didn't just say, like the other two, you gave me this and here's the fruit. He tried to justify himself by making his master out to be harsh and unjust. It's our heart relationship to God that bears fruit in the way we live and we've been seeing this through these chapters of Romans that it's not the actions we do that justify us but the actions we do are evidence of where our heart is in relation to him. Now it's important to see here that Paul isn't saying that it's possible for someone who has never heard the gospel to be justified by being good enough. He's still making the point that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are under the wrath of God and need God alone to take action to restore them to a right relationship with himself. He's simply saying that when a Gentile finally stands before God's judgment seat without having ever read or heard of the Ten Commandments, their conscience will be enough to testify that they are guilty before him. But Paul is also making the point that this gives no basis for confidence by a Jew who thinks that they can rely on the law to be saved. Have a look at verses 17 to 20. There's a list of things there that are are wonderful things. They're actually things that God desires for his people. He desires that we boast in him, boast in God. He desires that we know his will, that we approve what is excellent. 
that we're instructed from his law, that we are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children and those who have access to the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's a, a glorious picture of a human being and that is actually that is what God wants for human beings. It's something good for us to aspire to. But if we think we can become that by relying on the law, then we need to take a long hard look at ourselves. Because the law wasn't given to enable us to become that, it was given to show us that we are not that. And so when we apply the standard of the law to others, we're exposed as someone who doesn't keep that standard ourselves, whether it's stealing or committing adultery or robbing temples, the three examples that Paul gives. That last one there is a reference to the book of Malachi in which the Lord accused his people of robbing him for not paying their tithes for the upkeep of the temple and the provision of the priests and the Levites. So those people said, we hate idolatry, yet they loved their money more than God and weren't, weren't giving their tithes. And so they were, in effect, idolaters, even though they said, we apply the standard of the law to those idolaters out there who bow down to physical idols. Their idol was money. And this isn't just a matter of personal private righteousness. It's to do with the whole plan of God. Instead of being a blessing and a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, like they were called to be, the Jews' disobedience caused God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. And then what about one of their favourite laws? The law of circumcision. The Jews at the time would dub themselves the circumcision. It was the mark of the covenant. It was the sign that they were set apart as God's special people. And we know from the example of Paul and Timothy, when Paul had Timothy circumcised as they went on a missionary journey together, that they, the Jews would require a visual check to make sure that someone who claimed to be a Jew but maybe looked like a Gentile was actually truly a Jew. That's how important circumcision was to them. For them, circumcision functions, functions as some view baptism. Once you're done, you're in and nothing can ever take you out. But if you're not in, then you are inferior to those who are in. But Paul completely upsets the apple cart. He says circumcision is pointless without obedience. It's merely an external sign of something that is supposed to have happened internally. True circumcision, circumcision of the heart. So he's completely demolished any confidence that a Jew might have in thinking that they had one up on the Gentiles. Their religion could not save them. If the Gentiles were condemned because of their ignorant refusal to act on what God had revealed to them, both in creation 
and in their own consciences, then the Jews were likewise condemned for not acting on what God has given them in the law. Now, there's one more point that Paul wants to make in our passage this morning and it's to correct a misunderstanding that might arise from what he's saying. Paul, by teaching that the law couldn't justify a person, was accused of saying that the law then doesn't matter. All of the Jews' history is pointless if the law cannot justify a person. Not only this, he was accused of saying that sin doesn't matter because if people's disobedience brought out the righteousness of God, then sin is ultimately good. We should sin, we should do evil so that good will result because then God's righteousness will be made even more apparent. But he's not saying this at all. There was and is a unique and special purpose for God choosing Israel and he states this in verse 2 of chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Verse 1, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This was the point of their election. This was why God chose them to be his people, to be the channel through which the word of God would come to humanity. Not just in its written form in scripture, but in the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling with us. What a privileged responsibility. What a a blessing to be entrusted with the very words and word of God, to be the means of worldwide blessing. And uh, I'm not sure what the version in the pew, how it words it, but it, it might sound as if he's, he's about to start a list of advantages for being a Jew, but then he only mentions this. What he's actually saying is primarily this is it. Everything else, any other advantage for being a Jew comes under this banner. The Jews have been entrusted with the word of God. So there is a point of Israel's election. But there's also a point of Israel's history. A long history. A 2,000 year history from the time of Abraham up to the time that Paul is writing. God could have, if he'd wished, to send his son straight away, as soon as he made that promise to Abraham about his offspring. He could have, as soon as he made the promise to Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, he could have said, well, here's your son Abel, he's, he's the one. But he didn't. He took 2,000 years from Abraham to the sending of Jesus. Why? Well, because this history, which is a history of people's disobedience and unfaithfulness, is also a history of God's 
unending patience and faithfulness. That God entrusted for God in, not entrusted, God endured for two thousand years the stubbornness and arrogance of the people who bore his name tells us something about his character that we would not know otherwise. He was patient for so long with an entire nation. So will he not be patient with me, just me, in my sin and my foolishness? I can have a confidence in his goodness to me because it has been displayed to so many for so long. And so that's why Paul says our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Now let's pull back a bit more from this and see it from an even bigger perspective. Not just Yahweh dealing with the people of Israel but uh, the Father's perspective on all of human history. Just a small perspective. The biggest perspective you can have. And isn't it wonderful that we as creatures who are infinitely small compared to our Creator have been given insight into this. That the Father has revealed His purpose for all of history. When Jesus was talking with his disciples uh, just before he was crucified he said I don't call you servants anymore I call you friends because a servant doesn't know what his master's purpose is. He's just told go and do this and he, he does it without questioning. A friend is different. A friend is someone who's given insight into what your motives are, why you are doing what you are doing. God calls us his friends and he opens up his mind and his heart to us to see his purpose for the world. Now we could say that the history of the world has simply been the story of two things which parallels the history of Israel. The sinfulness of humanity and the glory of God. The ultimate goal of all history is that God himself will receive glory in all things. The Father, glorified by the Son, as all creatures declare that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is Lord in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. All things ultimately will work towards that goal. Now sometimes I hear people ask that big philosophical question, why did God allow sin to come into the world in the first place? It's an important question to ask, but the way we answer it will depend on how we see the Father's purpose. Why did God allow sin in the first place? Well, it can't be because he was surprised and he didn't see it coming. It just happened that he was caught off guard. Because we know he, he knows all things. He sees the end from the beginning. 
It can't be because God was unable to stop it happening. Because we know he is all-powerful. He upholds all things by his power. It can't be because he had some malicious intent to cause harm to his creation. Because we know that he is love. And that he described all that he had made as very good. And it can't be because he wanted to preserve human free will. Because he alone is free. And he calls us to pray for his will, not our will, to be done. Now I I believe that God's ultimate purpose in allowing sin into the world was that it would ultimately be for his own glory. He had a plan set in motion before the creation of the world and that plan was to send his son to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't something he had to come up with later when things were messed up. Adam and Eve, before sinning, knew God in all his goodness and faithfulness and truth and holiness and love. But after sinning, they knew something even more about him. They knew that God continued to remain good and faithful and holy and love even in the face of sin, even towards sinners, he remains constant in who he is. God is glorified in creation and that alone is enough to warrant his creatures to want to glorify and enjoy him forever. But his glory is so much more magnified supremely magnified when we see this same God of glory go to the cross and die in the place of sinners and rebels, those who hate God, those who refuse to glorify him or give him thanks. At that point in time when God himself hung hung on a cross with all of humanity shaking our fists in his face, he was using the worst crime ever committed in human history to bring about salvation. He used the act of human sin to save sinners and to show himself supremely as love. So if creation shows his glory, the cross shows his glory cubed. It's not just glory, it's Glory times glory times glory. And we have a full view of the full extent of God's righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his truth, his holiness and his love that we would never have been able to grasp if it were not for the cross. Now saying all this doesn't mean that sin is good or that it's not evil or deserving of judgement. It's not saying that God is the author of sin or the author of evil. It's not to say that he is to blame and we're off the hook. It 
doesn't give us an excuse to do evil with the excuse that it will magnify God's righteousness. It does, however, give us a vision of God that is far greater than our minds could conceive. If my God is big enough and sovereign enough to use even Israel's unrighteousness to his own glory, then he's big enough to deal with me in my mess of sin and to bring good out of it. No sin is too great. No human heart is too fallen to be forgiven and transformed by God's grace. Because he is sovereign over all things, including my sin, and because he is sovereign even over my sin, he is sovereign enough to forgive and restore. Let's pray. Father, we can only begin to grasp just a little bit of your eternal purpose in all things. And it may be that my particular take on your sovereignty is not not quite accurate or true but one thing we do know is that from before creation uh, your plan was in place to redeem us from our sin through the giving of your son and whatever that means for questions of sovereignty and your eternal purpose we can only begin to to scratch the the surface but what it does say to us is your goodness and your love and your grace triumphs over all of our sin and our unrighteousness because of that cross. Father, we've heard that uh, you show no partiality, that you hold all of us uh, to the same standard of a life that bears the fruit of a heart turned towards you. Father, we acknowledge and recognise that uh, if this is to be the case for us, It's only by your working in us, it's only by your grace that our heart could ever be open and warm and loving towards you as our Father. So we ask, Father, that you will do that work in our hearts, continue to do that work in our hearts, that our hearts may never become hardened or blind to your goodness and grace to us in your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.